If you have your Bibles, hold them up with me and repeat after me. This is God's Word. I believe what it says is true. It shows me how to know God and how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now turn with me in your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament, the last of the minor prophets, the book of Malachi. Now for many of us, the only thing we know about Malachi is that whenever the preacher wants us to give our money, he turns to the book of Malachi. And he talks to us about how we rob God and how we're supposed to tithe, and if we don't, we're under a curse. Now, I've got to be honest with you, Malachi teaches that. But Malachi teaches so much more. And if all we see is that one small nugget, we've missed the entirety of the truth that Malachi is trying to teach us. You see, the book of Malachi expresses God's love for his people. God loves us, and he longs to have a relationship with us. And it breaks God's heart when we're not living in that relationship that he created us to live in. The key verse in Malachi is found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, return to me, and I will return to you. That implies relationship. That implies that these people knew God. They had a relationship with God. They had experienced in the past the power and the presence of God. But somewhere, somehow, a long life's journey, they had strayed from God. And now they weren't living in God's presence. Now they weren't experiencing God's power. And God in his love is begging and crying out for his people to return to God. Now let me give you a little bit of background. Last week we discovered that when Cyrus became the king of Persia, the Lord stirred his heart to allow the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And because of the decree of King Cyrus, Zerubbabel led about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem intent on rebuilding the temple of God where the people encountered the presence of God. And when they got back to Jerusalem, they started building. But along the way, they encountered opposition. And when they encountered this opposition, they became discouraged. They became defeated, and they stopped building. That's when God sent Haggai and Zechariah and urged the people to get back to rebuilding the temple. And finally, it was completed in around 516 B.C. Years later, around 558, Ezra, a priest, led a second group back to Jerusalem. And about 13 years later, God stirred the heart of a man named Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls around the city. And in 52 days, just 52 days, they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. So now the temple was rebuilt, the city was rebuilt, and the walls around the city were rebuilt. But just because the city of God was rebuilt didn't mean that the people of God were back to where they needed to be. Because as we read God's word, we discover that the people of God did not have a relationship with God 
that was pleasing to God. Socially, divorce was rampant. Morally, the people didn't know right from wrong. Spiritually, the priests and the people were going through the motions of worship, but they had no real commitment to God. And as God looked down on them, his heart was broken. And that's why he sent Malachi. He sent Malachi to to give his people one last chance, one more opportunity to turn to him. And when I say last chance, I really do believe it was a last chance. Because when Malachi delivered his message, after he delivered it, there was a 400-year period of silence where God didn't speak. The people of God did not listen to God, and so God quit speaking to them. And for 400 years, God didn't say a word until we open up the New Testament and we read about a man named John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now when we look at Malachi, we discover that he's a man of mystery, we know nothing about his background we don't know where he was born how old he was what his occupation was he he simply appeared he performed the task that God gave him to and then it seems that that he disappeared he was just a voice and Malachi reminds us that that God isn't looking for superstars God isn't looking for someone with an impressive resume but rather he is looking for people who are willing to do his will regardless of where it leads, regardless of what it takes. And understand, Malachi's task wasn't an easy one. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, if your Bibles are already open, I hope they are, it says this, this is the message that the Lord gave Israel through the prophet Malachi. The word message literally means burden. It's the word in Hebrew that refers to an animal carrying the burden of a master. In other words, the message that Malachi was about to deliver was heavy on his heart. It was a burden on him because he knew that it was going to be a difficult message to deliver. You see, the message that Malachi was giving wasn't a message of comfort. It was a message of conviction. And he realized that most likely the people weren't going to respond positively. As we read through this book, we see time after time God warning his people. Seven times God makes a declaration. Seven times the people of God respond by questioning God. And seven times God gives them an answer. But the question that the people ask shows us that their hearts weren't right with God. It shows us that their hearts had become hardened toward God. But God shared with them that that if you do what I am telling you, if you heed my warning, if you listen to what I am saying and respond in obedience, I will bless you. But if you don't, my judgment's coming. And and I tell you today, as, as I read through this book, that what God said to his people through Malachi is the same message 
that God needs to give to his people, the church, today. He he spoke on issues like marriage. He spoke on issues like giving and and serving. He, He spoke about giving God our best. He spoke about all of these things that are relevant to us today. And as he did, he gave his people a warning. And he was saying, return to me and I will return to you. But if you don't. My judgment is coming. Now, as we unpack this book this morning, there are six things I want us to see that I think are vital. And to be honest with you, I believe that these same six warnings are warnings to us today. God is saying to us today, if we listen to this warning and return to God, He will return to us. But if we don't, and we continue to move further and further away from God, we will experience God's judgment. And so let's unpack these warnings. We're not going to have time to go into detail, but but I think you're going to get the gist of what Malachi says here. First of all, he says the first warning that we're moving away from God rather than moving to God is this. We doubt God's love. Now listen very carefully. Whenever we begin as God's people to doubt or question God's love, we're not moving toward God, we are moving away from God. Listen to what it says in chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I've always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? Now notice how God begins. God begins by saying, I have always loved you. The tense of that verb means I have loved you in the past, I love you in the present, and I will always love you in the future. Do you remember what God said through the prophet Jeremiah? He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you before you were ever born. I will love you after you die. I have always loved you, and I always will love you. You see, God's nature is love. And God reveals his love to us in his word, and he reveals his love to us in his actions. Everything about God reveals his love. But the greatest thing that reveals God's love is a thing that is revealed in the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God says, if you doubt, if you question my love, look to the cross. And you should never doubt or question my love anymore. And then in Romans 8, 29, it says, or 39, it says this, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. And yet they doubted God's love. And we doubt God's love. They said, how have you loved us? When when I read that, I thought to myself, how could anyone ever doubt God's love? I I thought, how could any of us ever doubt God's love? I've got to be honest with you. Look at me. I've never doubted God's love. I've never questioned God's love. I've doubted my love for God. (laughs) 
I've questioned my love for God, but I've never questioned His love for me. I mean, His love for me has always been so evident to me. So how is it that that so many of us today question and doubt God's love? Well, I think oftentimes it's because of the experiences we go through in life. We've, We've had a tough life. We've experienced a lot of hurt and a pain. We, we've lost someone close to us. We look around and it seems like everyone else is getting the breaks and, and we never get any breaks. And, and, and when we look around and, and life isn't going the way we want or the way we expect, we begin to wonder, does God really care? Does God really love me? And I'm here to tell you that He does. He loves you. You see, you can't let your present experiences or your past experiences or even your future situations determine whether God loves you or not. God's love works through time. And it takes time to be able to see God's love properly. This life that we're now living is only a small piece of the puzzle. And when you and I look at this small piece of the puzzle to try to determine whether God loves us or not, we're going to miss out on the entire picture that the puzzle displays. And we're going to miss out on God's love. I don't know what you're going through right now. But i got to tell you, I know what it's like to be disappointed. I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to feel pain and to experience loss. But those circumstances have never caused me to doubt God's love. They have always caused me to cling tighter to God's love. You see, we've got to look beyond our circumstances and always keep our minds focused on the cross. God loves you. And you can't doubt it. You've got to cling to that love and live in that love. So if you're doubting God's love, I'm warning you right now. You're headed in the wrong direction. But there's a second sign we're headed in the wrong direction, and that is we show contempt for God's name. We we dishonor His name. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, further the honor and respect I deserve. You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? Now, if your Bible's open, turn to chapter 2, verse 2. Listen to what it says there. Listen to me and, and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's army. Or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. The phrase, my name. Is found eight times in chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. It's all about honoring God's name, showing contempt for God's name. But here's where we mess up. You see, we think honoring God's name, showing contempt for God's name, has to do with how we talk. But understand, honoring God's name has more to do with how we live than how we talk. 
You see, we get all bent out of shape as Christians when we hear non-Christians use God's name in vain. GD this, or God this, or God that, or they say Jesus with this, or Jesus with that, and we get all bent out of shape. But understand, this command was given to the people of God. This isn't a command that's given to pagans and heathens and people that haven't experienced His grace. This command is given to those of us who have experienced God's grace, God's mercy. And He says we are dishonoring His name by the way that we live. And in chapter 1, we see how the Hebrews were doing this. They were bringing unfit sacrifices to the altar. They were bringing molded bread. They were bringing lame and crippled and diseased animals. And God had called for their first and their best, and yet they were given their leftovers. Notice what it says in verse 8. Malachi says, try giving gifts like this to your governor and see how pleased he will be. Give your leftovers. Give your your, your less than best to your governor and see how he will feel about it. Let me give you an example, men. It's your 25th anniversary. Your wife is expecting something big. She's put up with you for 25 years. She deserves something big. And so she has these dreams of this beautifully gift-wrapped bag or box and, and an exquisite dinner out on the town, maybe some dancing if you're into that. And, and instead of this beautiful gift wrap box and a beautiful exquisite dinner and a night on the town, you take her to McDonald's. And you give her a $10 gift card to Walmart. No man, look at me. Look at me. I don't care how poor you are. If your wife's put up with you for 25 years and that's what you give her, you deserve to get hit in the head. She is not going to be pleased. And God wasn't pleased. As a matter of fact, God said, I would just as soon shut the doors of the temple than allow you to continue to give that kind of sacrifice to me. You see, they were giving less than their best when God demanded their best. And that's what we do today. We just Pack God on to an already full plate. And yet the Word of God makes it clear that, that God expects to be the central focus of our life, the first priority of our life, our number one commitment. Listen, every other commitment, every other obligation should pale in relationship to our obligation, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Let's be honest, we give God our leftovers when it comes to our time, our energy, and our effort. But remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and brother, his children and his sisters, and, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus said, every other commitment, every other relationship, every other obligation must pale in comparison to your commitment to me. We dishonor God's name when we give him less than our best. And we're headed in the wrong direction. Third, we're headed in the wrong direction when we're unfaithful to our God-given vows. Listen to what God says in chapter 2. 
verses 13 and 14. He says, here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, groaning, because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my offerings, my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. The people were coming to the altar and they were crying out to God, why doesn't God accept our offerings? And God said, I'll tell you why. Because you've been unfaithful to the vows you made to your wife. And then God says in verse 16, I hate divorce. You see, the people of God started looking at marriage as temporary rather than permanent. Instead of seeing it as a commitment made before God, they saw it in terms of convenience. And if it was no longer convenient, then they would find someone else to be married to. And the same thing is happening today. More and more people are unfaithful to their vows. Now, please understand, some of you have been the victims of unfaithfulness. Some of you have longed to see your marriage work and succeed, and you've tried and tried and tried, and, and regardless of your best efforts, it's failed. I'm not talking to you. My heart breaks for you. But I am talking to those of you who have been unfaithful to your vows. America has only 5% of the world's population, but we have 50% of the world's divorces. The fact of the matter is, the statistic for Christians getting divorced is pretty similar to the statistic of non-Christians getting divorced. And yet God called us to a lifetime commitment. Uh, listen to what he said in verse 15. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife and body and spirit you are his? And, and what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. So guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. He tells us three things. First of all, he said, I've given you a model to follow from the very beginning. And in that very first phrase, he goes back to Genesis 2 where he says, Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and, and the two will become one. And God said, that's always been my plan. That will always be my plan. And so in light of that, can I give a quick word to three groups? First of all, any of you who have never been married, you're not married right now. Here's what I would say to you. Right here, right now, you make a commitment. I'm not marrying anybody but a believer. You say, well, there's just no good believers that are, that are available. Well, then God doesn't want you married. Make the commitment right now. I'm not going to marry anyone but a believer. Because if you do, most likely there's going to be a price to pay. Second thing I would say to you, if you are not married, is this. When you find that someone and you begin to talk, the two of you have to be in agreement. This marriage is forever. You need to sign a covenant. You need to put it in blood. Both of you need to do a prenuptial contact contract. If I get out of this marriage in any reason other than you being a jerk, which is being unfaithful, then I've got to give you everything I own. You say, are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Yes, I'm serious. If you're going to marry somebody, you need to stay committed to them. You say, well, they just aren't as pretty as they used to be. Neither are you. 
They haven't given me the life I thought they were going to give me. You probably haven't given them what they thought you were going to give them. Marriage is a two-way street. So if you're not married, don't date a non-believer because you're going to marry who you date. And then when you marry, marry for a lifetime. Second, for those of you who are married, stick with it. Stick with it. I know it takes two to tango. And if you're married to someone who is not willing to work at it, they're not here right now, they're not going to come, they're out doing whatever else, then, I mean, I, I, I really don't know what to tell you. But if the two of you are here right now, you're making the commitment, we're going to stick with it. You say, well, the next one might be better. No, they won't. Because they're going to be married to you. So make the commitment to stay married to the person you're with. Third, to you who are divorced. Divorce isn't the unpardonable sin. You need to commit that from here on out, I'm going to do everything I can to have a marriage that's pleasing to God. You need to ask God forgiveness if you need it. You say, well, why would I need it? Well, if you're the one who was unfaithful, if you're the one who walked out without biblical cause, you're the one to blame. And you need to ask God's forgiveness. Now, I know, look at me, look at me. I know some of you are getting all proud right now. You're kind of getting all hot. You're getting all upset. And you're thinking, I dare him saying that to me. Why well, dare you being so proud and arrogant before God? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so if you're the one who caused your marriage to fail because of your unfaithfulness, because of your unwillingness to work at it, then you need to go before God and say, God, I am sorry that you haven't done it. They were unfaithful to their vows. And why did God want them to remain one? We don't have time to go into this in detail and unpack it, but he wanted godly children from the union. Can I just say to you right now, you're going to have a lot better chance of having godly children if you stay married. There's an old Chinese proverb, let me see, that says this. It says, there are a few whole eggs in a broken nest. Makes a lot of sense. We want godly children. We need stable homes. And then he tells us how to do it. He says, guard your heart. Remain loyal. Put up guardrails. There are things that I don't do. There are places I won't go. And some people don't understand that. Some people think it's silly. But hey, I've been married for 34 years. And I'm still in love with my wife. She's not perfect. I'm not perfect. We both are flawed sinners saved by grace. But I got to tell you, the reason we're still married is because I put up guards to guard my heart. And you need to do that too. So when we're unfaithful to those vows, we're moving in the wrong direction. Don't tell me God told you to do it. Fourth, we deny God's judgment. Look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with him. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, I'm, I'm not going to unpack this at all because it is so simple to understand. What this is saying is that the people of God had convinced themselves that God would not judge them, that they could live any way they wanted, and yet God wasn't going to care. 
But let me tell you something. The Bible says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. You will stand before God one day. Some of us look at the world and we think God doesn't care because God hasn't already judged. Listen, you don't know what God has up his sleeve. You don't know what God has on his agenda. I, I for one, am thankful that God's judgment was held off in my life. Because if God would have judged me when I deserved judgment, I would have never experienced his grace. But God was patient with me, not wanting any to perish, but at all to come to repentance. And that's why perhaps God is holding back judgment right now. Because he wants to give us an opportunity to repent. Fifth, we're heading in the wrong direction when we take what belongs to God. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. I am the Lord, I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. God's patience. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's army. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? Boy, they were blind. Should people cheat God? Yet you've cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. Now this is a tough one. Because God said that they were not only cheating and stealing from people, they were cheating and stealing from him. And he said the way they were doing it was they were not giving their tithes, they were not giving their offerings. And, and hear me, this passage goes on to say that they would be living under a curse. Now, if you're part of the Northside family, you should know this. And we're not going to unpack this in detail if you're a guest today. But understand, the tithe, which is 10% of what you make, is God's. It's all God's. And God, in His grace and His mercy, has said you can have 90% to do with as you please in a way that honors me. But 10%, I want you to give back to me to show me that you understand that it's all mine. And then he says, you're robbing me of not only the tithe, but the offerings. The offerings are what we give above and beyond the tithe. Now listen, I know some of you, some of you are going to say, well, that's the law. We live under grace. Look at me. So what you're telling me is that the law of God can command you to do something that the love of God will not compel you to do. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I would give God something if I was forced to, but because I'm not forced to, I'm not going to give it. That's ludicrous. How can we say that God's love causes us to give less than God's law? We can't. God's grace will always compel us to do more. Because we've seen not only God's justice, but we've seen his mercy. When we're taking things that rightfully belong to God, our resources, our money, 
and we're keeping them for ourselves. We're not moving toward God. I don't care how long we've been in the church. We're moving away from God. One final thing. When we despise serving God, we're moving away from God. Notice what it says, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, you have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord of Heaven's army that we're sorry for our sins? They were saying, why should we serve God? What do we get out of it? They were just like so many of us today. And that's why so many people today are jumping from church to church, shopping and hopping, because they're trying to find that church that meets their needs. We've become consumers shopping for a product rather than Christians serving the living God. Understand, we don't serve God because of what we get out of it. We serve God because He's God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is your maker. He is your redeemer. And He deserves your service. Yeah, you can give God a hand for that. And when we're not giving that service, it shows that we're moving away from God, not toward God. Now let's recap. Let's, let's unpack this once again. Are, are you trusting God's love? Are you clinging to that love? If not, you're moving away from God. Are you giving God your best or are you giving God your leftovers in regard to time and resources and other things? If not, you're moving away from God. Are you faithful to your vows? you're not you're moving away from God do you understand that we must all appear before the judgment seat of God and there is a standard of right and there is a standard of wrong God sets it if not you're moving away from God are you giving God back what rightfully belongs to him if not you're moving away from God are you serving him out of love because he's God not because of what you think you'll get in return if not, you're moving away from God. Now, here's what I want you to do. I imagine that many of us, if we're honest, we'd have to admit that as we unpack these six things that are found in Malachi, that one or two or multiple ones apply to our lives today, and God's warning us. And we're going to have to determine this morning whether we're going to heed and listen to the warning or we're going to walk out these doors just like the Hebrews did 2,500 years ago and move into a point where God's silent in our life. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you look at these things and you go, wow, I'm doing this or I've started doing this or I'm in danger of doing this, then you need to get to this altar on your knees before God, making things right with Him. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a, a parent. Maybe it's a neighbor. And, and you're going, God, they need to return to you. You need to come to this altar and shed tears for them.
every week until God moves in an extraordinary way. The people of God need to be at this altar crying and begging God to do what we can't do. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. But maybe there are some of you here who right now you're saying, I can't return to God because I've never been with God. I don't know Him. But right now you realize that you've rebelled against the God of creation. That's what sin is. Sin means that you've chosen to live life your way rather than live under His rule. That's sin. And maybe you're here and you said, I've done that. I've rebelled against the God of creation. And, And if that's you, you need to repent. You need to turn from that rebellion. And you need to trust in God's love. Say, how do I know he loves me? The cross. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God that is found in Jesus is eternal life. Jesus came to this earth, died on the cross to pay your sin debt, pay for your rebellion. You trust him, you ask him to save you. Then you give you life to him. You give you life to him. Surrender. I don't want to live my way anymore, Jesus. I want to live for you. If that's what you want to do, if that's what you need to do, and you're willing to do that right now, I want you to bow your head with me. Before we have our altar time, I want you to bow your head with me. Your head bowed with your eyes closed. If that's what you need to do, you need to give your life to Jesus. I encourage you to pray this prayer right now. Father, I've sinned against you. I've rebelled. I've lived life my way. Please forgive me. I don't want to live this way anymore. So sorry. I know you love me. You sent your son to die for my sin so that I could be forgiven. Today, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Take control. From this point on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.